0: All right. Well, I guess we'll get the party started.
1: Um, uh,
0: if you want to mute your mics, that'd be great. Just so you know, too, I am trying to record audio from this. Uh, I don't have a sermon, but I have some thoughts on First Samuel twenty-six <laughs> that I'll post later. So, just so you know, you may still be on the internet forever and ever. So, watch what you say, but do do talk. That's that's <laughs> not like a. Threat. That's
1: just a, so you know.
0: Um, I wanted to start with does anybody know what special day today is? Today is actually a holiday in large parts of the world. Uh, anybody know what the holiday is? Before Zoe guesses.
1: Okay. Re- Reformation Sunday, isn't
0: it? Reformation Sunday? That sounds amazing. I don't know if that's true, but if it is, that sounds incredible. Day
1: of the Dead in Mexico?
0: Day of the Dead, yeah. Uh, day of the Dead is tied in with, I think Dennis and Barb said, um, All Saints Day. And yeah, today's All Saints Day, that's a fairly significant holiday in um, Orthodox religion and Catholicism. And I wanted to share a quick story to start today, because whenever, every All Saints Day I think of, um, this day 16 years ago, I was in Poland with ABC. Um, Poland is 95% Catholic, um, so Catholicism was everywhere. And on All Saints Day, that was the day that we actually went to Auschwitz, um, To just so my girls know. It was a place where, um, in the 40s, German people killed a lot, a lot, a lot of people, and Auschwitz was one of the places they did that. Why? Uh, well, we can talk about that later. But we were on in Auschwitz for All Saints Day, which meant that many hundreds of family members were there lighting candles for their relatives who were killed there um, at auschwitz, and it was a really powerful, powerful thing um, to see these candles, these these family members crying and praying, these images of hope and peace and love in the middle of that place of pain and fear and and hate. So I, I always think of that on All Saints Day. It's a portrait of, of small humanity in a place of terrible dehumanization, a, a small light in a place of tremendous darkness. Um, I was thankful to be there at Auschwitz at all. Like I, I was really looking forward to being there, and it meant a lot to me. It was like holy ground to be there. But I was extra thankful to be there on November 1st on All Saints Day. And for this morning, I, I'm thankful for all of you saints I'm thankful that we can come together and share light and hope uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, so I think about that every November first. What a um, really special time that was, and um, I think it's meaningful what this time is is bringing light and hope in darkness as well. So thanks for being here. Glad you all made it. Uh, Dave is going to lead us in communion. I have some thoughts on First Samuel 26. But uh, why don't we start? Uh, I'll pray. God, you are so good. And uh, whatever hope and peace and love that we have, we know it comes from you. You are a light in whatever darkness um, is in this world. And the reason we're having online church is because of um, something not great, because of something kind of dark. But we know that you are good. We're thankful for the light that we have in you for the the belonging that we have together in you. So thank you for all of these saints that we get to gather together with and worship with together this morning. I'm thankful for each of them. And I pray that uh, together, uh, in your light, we would bring you glory. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Also, Happy Halloween. I considered maybe doing online church in my Triceratops costume, but um, decided against that. Dave, I'll invite you to unmute and give us some thoughts on communion.
1: Okay. I'm going to read from
2: uh, John 12. Uh, Okay. Um, Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. So that would be Passover. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said we would like to uh, see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a, a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So this is what this I'm keying in on here is this verse, and anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from earth, will draw people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that
1: the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you see, say, the Son of Man must be
2: lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from
1: them. I never realized this. I listened to a little sermon about this
2: online last weekend. I never realized that um, this verse, I always thought the Son of Man must be lifted up. Okay, and when I am lifted up, verse 32, from the earth, will draw people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So, being lifted up is to be lifted up on the cross. So, everybody knew that. I didn't get that. I, um, to be put down, like, in a, the Jews would uh, execute by stoning, like Stephen, in Acts, and... When they were gonna uh, stone the uh, the adulterous woman um, so it was putting down in this case it was Jesus was being lifted up in the Roman crucifixion and well I really have a struggle with dying to self I I like comfort I like you know things and and How do we get to that point where we hate our lives, as Jesus said? I think one of the disciplines is like communion, where we can come right now and focus and ask the Lord, um, Lord, how how can I do this? How can I in spiritual formation and being an apprentice of Jesus, how can I I more to myself. And Jesus said it's like a seed that dies and then the mustard seed dies and then it, it flourishes later bearing fruit. Um, so this can't be done on our own will. We need the Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit to to do this for us. Um, so let's let's pray. I'll pray and we'll take the the bread and the juice, His body that was broken, His blood that was shed in a horrible, horrible death of excruciating pain, and uh, we'll, we'll ask the Holy Spirit. So I'm gonna offer just pray, Lord, <clears throat> we come before you humbly and ask that. Um, that we could see clearly that um, as Paul said in Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know to what he has called you to um, in Ephesians um, chapter 1. And we pray that our eyes and heart would be enlightened, that you will uh, speak to us And show us how we can uh, walk with you. I just admit and confess that I am so far from dying to myself. And I ask that you help us, Lord. Help us to, um, in a sense, hate our lives. And that we may take on um, what you want, Lord. And not so much what we want in our lives. So... We ask this uh, by Your Spirit, because we cannot, we cannot do this on our own. So um, we take the bread now and the wine, and uh, we give You all the glory, Lord, for what You did. In Jesus' name,
1: Amen. Amen.
0: It's such a beautiful and important message—the idea of dying to self—and um, later in the sermon, I'll talk about something very similar, and I was trying to find that verse. and couldn't find it, so you found it for me. So it's kind of perfect. Uh, hey! That's pretty cool. What a team.
1: Um,
0: <clears throat> Alright. We're going to read 1 Samuel 26, and you'll notice right away that the story is very similar, parallels very nicely with 1 Samuel 24. That was the chapter we read two weeks ago at Madison's baptism. That was the story of David in the cave, and Saul comes in, uh, and uh, David gives him grace. He just cuts off a corner of his robe instead of killing Saul because he has such fear for the Lord's anointed. And this story is very similar to this. In fact, some scholars think that it's the same story, told twice. Um, But there are a bunch of differences, and it, it is a powerful story again. This is the last time that we'll see Saul and David together, chapter 26. And we'll only see Saul two more times. Um, there's two more stories with Saul in it. One of them is so weird, you guys. I am really looking forward the the, the Witch of Endor. It's such a weird story. Um, and then the story of his death, and that's it for Saul. So this is the last time Saul and David are together. We also, in this chapter, we meet a couple figures who play somewhat prominent roles in the kingship of David. Um, one of them is Abner, who we've actually met before. Abner is, um, Saul's cousin and second in command under Saul. He's kind of the leader of the military. He was the one who brought David to Saul after David defeated Goliath. Abner will remain fiercely loyal to Saul for all the rest of Saul's life. But after, uh, Saul dies, Abner honors David and David forgives Abner, which is a huge deal. Abner represents a very real threat to David. So much so that David's friends are like, <clears throat> no, you got to kill him. You got to get rid of that guy. But instead, David forgives him. Um Abner represents the very best of Saul's kingship. He is courageous. um, He is uh noble. He is very unlike King Saul himself. And so Abner represents the best of Saul's kingship. And David still in this chapter will completely dismantle and discredit even Abner. So it's like one more way that, that Saul's kingship is being torn apart. Um, We also meet a guy named Abishai. I don't know if any of you have read first and second Samuel before it's, it's not a common couple books to read, but if you have read, you probably remember at the end of second Samuel, there's the story of David's mighty men. He's got this group of guys. They're like ultimate hero fighter champions. And, their exploits are legendary. There's three mighty heroes. And Abishai is not one of the three, but he is like the fourth guy. And he's like the, the leader of the three. Abishai is, um, he'll be memorialized as one of David's elite, loyal fighting men. He is legendary and he has a powerful reputation for fierceness, bravery, and loyalty. And that begins today. This is the first time we meet Abishai. And he's he's a pretty cool guy. So. That's just setting the stage for our reading. I do have a question, though, that I would like you to think about and then unmute your mics and answer. Um, So I'm trying to make this interactive since it's weird to do this this way. Um, So the question is this. What is the thing that you wrap too much of your identity into? What is something external that you... It shouldn't define you, but it really does... You see it as something that defines you. And I'll give you an example. I've got a couple from my life because there are many of these. For me, (coughs) um, one of those things is my iPod. My iPod, which is just uh, the thing that I carry my music on, I put way too much of my identity in the contents of my iPod. Too much pride in how much is on there. Um, Too much, I think, the songs that I have are what define me. So I put a lot of my identity in my iPod. Just a small thing that shouldn't mean as much to me as it does, shouldn't express as much about myself as it does. Does anyone else have an example like that? Maybe a vehicle, maybe the cleanliness of your kitchen, maybe your garden, maybe your job. Um, Sharon laughs about cleanliness of her kitchen. Is that what made you laugh? Um, (laughs) What is something outside of you that defines you. I know. Kennedy's got one. Go ahead, Kennedy. Piglet. Who is Piglet? Tell the people who Piglet is.
1: Piglet is a real pig. No, <laughs> that Not. Talk to you.
0: Piglet is a stuffed pig. It's who nice gave it to you? Stuffed. Who gave it to you?
1: My cousin, And she's the other person that identifies me, glow you know what that means. That like yeah. That like basically
0: Sure, your family. You get a lot of your, Do you want to go get piglet and show them?
1: Sure. That's Piglet's a great example. Pig.
0: Does anybody else have an example while she's doing that? Uh, Dennis here. We pregnancy yes. checked the cows yesterday, and Barb
2: especially is getting really, really frustrated with my love of my animals. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah, that, that's a, a little vice of my own, I guess.
0: Sure. Not a vice, just something you get a lot of your identity from is your cows. That's not necessarily bad. Bill?
2: Yeah, I love my old truck. Yep. Uh, I guess a lot of my identity is with my truck. Yeah, you got too much.
0: Fair enough. I was, I was almost certain somebody in this group of individuals would say their vehicle. So thank you, Bill. Barry?
2: I work. uh, I'd say my self esteem is uh, too closely tied to
0: her. Right. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common one in North America. Yeah. Thanks, Barry. Here's Piglet. Kennedy's got Piglet here to show.
1: This is Piglet.
0: (laughs) Anybody else? Sharon and Andrew, I see you're unmuted. Yeah, as you can see in the back of my wall there. (laughs) Sharon
1: says, I'm too involved with my chicken. She's like Dennis with his I've got chicken stuff
0: all over the house, so I'm guilty too. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, when we did our, our Zoom leadership meeting a couple weeks ago, couldn't help but notice that big cut out chicken with all the spoons on it. That is so iconic for Sharon and Andrew. Thanks, you guys. Yes.
1: i, think I might get a little overboard on. Sourdough and kombucha and <laughs> healthy cooking
0: <laughs> <laughs> All your weird Ford food. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And uh, yeah, you get a lot of your identity from that. And again, for all of these, there's nothing wrong with appreciating these things. I'm going to make a point about it later. But yeah, when I think of Trish, I think of kombucha for sure. Um, well, thanks for all those ideas. I'll come back to that after... We examine the chapter a little bit. So let's read First uh, Samuel chapter 26. It's not very long. The Ziphites, it's the Ziphites that can in chapter 21 of the other chapters, they were the ones who said, hey, we know where David is. We'll tell you where he is. And they're doing it again. They went to Saul at Gibeah and said, is not David hiding on the hill of Hachilah, which faces Deshamin? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel, five times what David's numbers were, by the way to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hekilah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. That's the beginning of the legend of Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood... Actually, real quick. um, God is very active in this chapter. David and Abishai don't know it, but we know it. The narrator knows it. It was God who put Saul and his camp into the deep sleep. So God is working miracles to accomplish his plan and to lead his chosen one to the throne. But sleep calls to mind two other really important Bible stories. Can anybody think of a time where God put someone to sleep, or where sleep played a prominent role? There's a very, very early story where God puts someone to sleep. Oh, Adam. (laughs) Yep, that's right. Zoe and Sharon said at the same time, Adam and Eve. God puts Adam to sleep into a deep sleep. Yeah, we can hear you, Sharon. We've been hearing you this whole time. (laughs) It's okay, you haven't said anything crazy. Um, God put Adam into a deep sleep and took one of his ribs while he was asleep and used the rib to make Eve. Um, so that is one example. Can anybody think of another time where a bunch of people were sleeping when they should have been watching over the Lord's anointed?
1: The jailers, when Paul was in prison?
0: Yeah, they. I think they were sleeping. Yeah.
1: The disciples.
0: Yeah, the one I was thinking of is the disciples, although the jailer one fits with this idea too. Um The disciples, when Jesus was praying in the garden the night before he was crucified, the disciples, he even says to them, stay awake, please pray with me, and they all fall asleep. Um So in both those stories, they're like Abner, Adam and the disciples, and Abner, who was asleep when he should be watching over Saul. Um in all those stories, God uses sleep to accomplish his work in the midst of brokenness. So in the story of Adam and Eve, the brokenness is that Adam doesn't have a partner. So God puts him to sleep and makes a partner for him. In the story of the disciples, the darkness, the brokenness is that Jesus needs to die for us. And he needs to be committed to that path that leads to death. And while he's praying, his disciples are falling asleep, which is just like Abner in this story, and here the brokenness is that we've got two anointed men—one on the down, one on the up—and David needs to be validated. And God puts everybody to sleep so that David can do what he's about to do to validate um, to validate his his coming kingship. So just that connection of God accomplishes His will through sleep. And the jailers—if if I'm thinking the story Trish mentioned—they fall asleep too and. And um, is it Peter and James can escape? I forget the whole story. But God uses deep sleep to accomplish his will amidst the brokenness. So let's keep going from verse 13. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Abner can't answer because he knows he stands condemned. But Saul answered. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done, and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let the lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the lord. They have now driven me from my share in the lord's inheritance, and have said, Go, sir, other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. And I read a little, there's a little bit of wordplay here that I read about. The Hebrew word for partridge is literally the one who calls on the mountain. That's what they call a partridge is a mountain caller. And basically that's what David is now doing to Saul, calling to him from the mountain. So a partridge is a small thing that gets hunted. It's also one who calls on the mountain. So it's fitting that David compares himself to a partridge. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. And again, that's the last time these two will meet face to face. Um, In the last chapter, which we looked at at Online Church, it's the story of David and Nabal. David had been protecting Nabal's people and and asked Nabal for a favor, and, and instead Nabal refuses. So David marches out to to kill Nabal and his whole family, until Nabal's wife Abigail stops him. Um, it's it's a story of David avoiding bloodshed, even though Nabal deserved it. David doesn't give David doesn't give Nabal what he deserves. Here, although we might all agree that Saul does deserve to be pinned to the ground by his spear, David has learned his lesson from Nabal, and he refuses again to shed the blood of of Saul. So that's the connection between last chapter and this chapter and it's not that david doesn't welcome the idea of saul's death in fact in verse 10 it shows he's thought about it a great deal in verse 10 um i'll just read it real quick he's like abishai no don't kill saul the lord will do that in fact maybe the lord will strike him dead maybe his time will come and he will die maybe he'll die in battle and so it shows he's been thinking a lot about saul's death but he won't be the one who who takes his life he he's, david is committed to not letting that death come at his own hands he will not seize the throne instead he'll wait for the lord's timing um david doesn't grasp the glory that is rightfully his rather he gives grace and waits for his time and because of that david will eventually be given glory so all of those things refusal to grasp Giving grace. Gifted with glory. Does any of that sound familiar? What does that sound like? sounds a lot like Philippians 2. And Zoe, I asked you to get Philippians 2 ready. Have you got it? Can you read Philippians 2 nice and loud? Verses 5 to 11.
3: You should think in the same way Christ Jesus does. In this very nature, he was God. But he did not think that being equal with God was something he should hold on to. Instead, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He was made in human form. He appeared as a man. He came down to the lowest level. He obeyed God completely, even though it led to his death. In fact, he died on a cross. So God lifted him up to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name. When the name of Jesus is spoken, everyone's knee will bow to worship him every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to worship him everyone's mouth everyone's mouth will say that Jesus Christ is Lord and God the Father will receive the glory
0: so so once again I did a couple of sermons on this David, who is a lowercase M Messiah is a portrait of Jesus the uppercase M true messiah Uh, it's powerful foreshadowing and in this in these stories both 24 chapter 24 which we read at Madison's baptism and 26 which we read today in both david doesn't grasp power even though we all know the power is going to be his and i'm sure david is very impatient at times having to deal with saul but he doesn't grasp the power he waits for god's timing and while he waits he glorifies god by giving grace and life to those who deserve death namely Saul, who is pursuing him for no good reason. Um, He sees the value in others. Saul is the Lord's anointed one. He's like, I could never touch the Lord's anointed. I can never do that. He sees value in Saul, um, and he humbles himself completely in the light of the value of his enemy. And for that patience, for trusting the will of God and the promises given to him, for his goodness and humility and grace, for having the very heart of God What is David rewarded with? He's rewarded with glory. He's made a king. Jesus, I think, likewise, not I think. I know that Jesus likewise sees that same value in us. Not that we are special and and anointed, but we are called and chosen and set apart by God. In a sense, we are just as anointed as Saul was. And Jesus sees our value in us. He sees the value in all humanity. And because of that, He is patient with us, though we deserve the spear. Instead, he gives grace. He humbly serves us in the same way that David bows down and humbly serves his king, Saul. Jesus trusted the promises his father gave him. And now he is raised, as Dave talked about in his communion message. Now he is raised to the place of highest glory. And he invites us to join him in that glory. But there's a warning for us here. It's not by accident that David takes Saul's spear from him. That spear, like my iPod, or like Dennis's cows, or like Bill's truck, that spear is the thing that is the defining item for King Saul. In chapter 17, that's where David goes out to fight Goliath, and we hear a lot about Goliath's spear, right? Its, its head is as big as a weaver's loom or whatever. It's this massive spear. We hear a lot about the spear of, of Goliath, but we don't hear anything about Saul's spear because Saul is too cowardly to go out and fight Goliath. He, he needs a little shepherd boy to do his fighting for him. We don't hear about Saul's spear then. But in the next chapter, chapter 18, we do hear about Saul's spear because that's when he gets jealous of David and flings his spear at David. And in chapter 19, same thing, flings his spear at David, intending to pin David to the wall. Chapter 20, same thing. He doesn't fling it at David. This time he flings it at Jonathan, his own son, out of jealous wrath. He intends to pin Jonathan to the wall. So 18, 19, 20, we hear all about Saul's spear. Later in chapter 22, David is fleeing from Saul, and he gets some help from Ahimelech the priest. And when Saul finds out about it, this is what it says in chapter 22. It says, Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, And Saul was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side and with his spear in his hand. So whenever we get a portrait of Saul and his jealousy and his wrath and his um, short-sighted desire to grasp what is his, whenever we get that picture of Saul, he's always got a spear in his hand. And he's either flinging it at someone or really ominously, like, using it to threaten people around him. Um, Saul with spear in hand is an ominous and foreboding image. That spear represents all the cowardice, all the jealousy, all the wrath of Saul. That spear represents his unwillingness to follow God's will, and his stubborn insistence on doing things his way, no matter what the cost to people around him might be. Um... We have many spears. I have many spears in my life. My iPod is one. That's a more lighthearted one. But I have other things that I cling to. I cling to pleasure. Uh, David mentioned this in his communion message too. Wanting comfort. um, Wanting things to to be easy for myself. I cling to that. I cling to my ego. I cling to my selfish desires. There are many spears in my life that, that I cling to. And when things don't go my way, I... I, I grasp onto what I can. I have many spears. I find my identity in many destructive things, just like King Saul. And it's important to remember that all of those things we cling to, even good things like your chickens and your cows, or there's nothing wrong with having a truck you like, or music you love, or food that you make and are proud of. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when they become our identity, when they become what we wrap ourselves up in, then they are worthless. And they need to be taken from us so that we can grasp onto what's really important. Just like Dave read in in John 12. um, Sorry, I don't don't want to misquote it, so I'll just read it. Um, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it. The things we grasp onto define us. They become our identity. And so what are we grasping onto? Saul, he grasps his spear, this portrait of wrath and power and control. That's what he turns to and grasps. And it gets taken from him for him to learn a lesson. And so the lesson is similar for us. Whatever spear we cling to, lay it aside. Give it up. Don't grasp onto your own lives like Saul does or you will lose it as Saul does. Instead, grasp onto Jesus. Demonstrate his heart, Jesus' heart, as David does, King David, also David Harris. Demonstrate God's heart, as David does, through grace to others, forgiveness of enemies, patience in God's plan, humility, and seeing the divine value in our neighbors. Those are all the things that King David does that show his heart for God. And those are the things we should grab onto. Um, those are the things that should define us. Rest assured that if you let those things define you, if you let Jesus define you, then as with Jesus, there's glory waiting for you. So that's 1 Samuel 26. There's some crazy stories coming up that I'm really excited to get into. Um, Does anybody want to add anything to that discussion of things we grab onto of Jesus, the humble king who is glorified? Does anybody want to add anything to that? Hey, just a really quick note. At this point, Angeline spoke up and had some really good points, but my microphone couldn't capture her audio very well. So basically what she said is that even good things can become like a spear to us. Um, I wish we would have caught it. She made some good points, but uh, here's my response to her good point. Yeah, anything that um, becomes an idol, the best things can be destructive. In fact, Saul was elected king. He was named king, so he could use that spear. That was the spear that was supposed to take out the enemies of Israel. But it became this portrait of of self-obsession um, and pride and control. So, yeah, thank you for that, Angeline. That's a good thought. All these things, it's just we have to be able to turn them over to Jesus. Um, not let them be our identity. Not let them be the things that define us. But let Jesus be the thing that defines us. The person who defines us and shapes us. Okay. Well, thanks, everyone. Um, this was really good. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Why don't we unmute? Say our goodbyes.
1: Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.
0: Enjoy your kombucha, Trish.
3: Thanks, I will. <laughs> that was a great Sunday. Yeah. This Sunday
1: is not awful.
0: The things we grasp onto define us. They become our identity. Don't grasp onto your own lives, or you will lose it. Instead, grasp onto Jesus.
1: Anybody else joining Angie for
0: Sweatpants Church?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful day outside. It's a beautiful day.